You're listening to Big Table, a podcast about books and conversation, presented by Invisible Republic, Hattenbeard Press, Dub Lab, and Gold Diggers in Los Angeles. I'm your host, JC Gable. For each episode, we speak to one author about a singular book in a long-form interview. Each interview is then followed by a brief reading, sometimes from the same book being discussed, sometimes by a like-minded title and a different author. But every episode does retain a loose theme throughout and is inspired by the work of radio host and oral historian Studs Turkle. Thanks for listening. It's not hyperbole to say that Steve Keen has produced more original artwork than most, if not all, American artists, having painted more than 300,000 works in the last 30 years. Raised and educated in Charlottesville, Virginia, he first came to my attention in the mid-90s when I was working for the indie record label Drag City in Chicago. Steve had done the cover art for Silver Jews' Arizona record, as well as Pavement's Wowie Zowie on Matador. Keen had gone to college with David Berman, and Stephen Malcolmus in the 1980s, and they remained friends and collaborators afterwards. Although he is known to some for his indie rock album covers, he has a much bigger audience today outside of the music scene of downtown New York in another era. Not only is he now collected in museums, but is still lovingly known for making affordable art. Most of Steve's work retails for under $70, and in the 1990s heyday, they went for five or $10 a piece. Steve continues to crank out 50 paintings at a time day in, day out, from his converted auto body shop home studio in Brooklyn, where he has lived and worked with his architect wife and family for years. The Steve Keen art book, originally conceived during the sold-out show at Shepard Ferry's L.A. Gallery Subliminal Projects in 2016, is the first art book dedicated exclusively to his work as a fine artist. I spoke with the book's editor, Daniel Ephraim, a photographer, producer, and longtime manager of the Apples in Stereo, about the life and times of Steve Keen. Ephraim and I co-published this book with Hatton Beard Press and his company Tractor Beam in New York City. I've always been a longtime fan of Keen's and a collector. 20 years ago, I spent the day with him, profiling him in the pages of Stop Smiling, the magazine for high-minded lowlifes, which I published from 1995 to 2009 from Chicago and New York. Here's my conversation with Daniel Ephraim. The Steve Keen art book was an idea that originated um, through the shows that uh, Shepard Ferry and Amanda Ferry and myself co-curated at Shepard's Gallery Subliminal Projects in Los Angeles. It, it really didn't dawn on me until I was working on putting those shows together with Steve that, oh, you know, the gallery asked me for photos of his of every piece that he was going to put in the show, just on a very logistical basis. That's what galleries do. Um, and so I was the guy that took photos of all his work and just working down the, the you know, down the line in the process, it, no one else had really archived his work. He doesn't archive his work. And so it dawned on me that, wow, you know, the, you know, this is kind of interesting. The, just creates work. He's all he's interested in painting. He's interested in creating art. He's not interested in archiving it. He's interested in painting it and getting it out the door. 
why do you think it is he doesn't like to to archive his own work? You think it's because he has this sort of don't look back attitude with the the painterly style that he's adopted over these years, and that it's it's easier for him to look forward, not backwards. I think that's it, that would seem logical to me that, that that's part of it that he's creating and what his creative mind, you know, what his mindset is is to always do better and to always create something a little bit more, you know, uh, to always improve his work. And so to look backwards to him, you know, again, this is purely speculation, but from my inside perspective, I guess, is that he enjoys painting. He doesn't really enjoy thinking about it too much. Um, the craft is so, so much a part of him. I think it's also a way for him to continue to grow as an, as an artist by not looking back, um, except to think about how he could improve, um, how he could do things in his mind. Improving is, is multidimensional. Of course, there's the idea of improvement, meaning, and I've heard him talk about this where it's, you know, improving his brushstrokes, but it's also making things more quickly and, or using the idea of his, you know, he's been called the assembly line Picasso. And this is, you know, what he's doing. It's a truly unique process that he's developed over his 30 odd years of doing this work. And so a lot of his work, uh, his, his, his refinements are not just about, you know, his, like I said, his brushstroke, but it's about how can I do this even more efficiently? How can I, um, for the uninitiated, Steve, paints in volume and he paints in a cage which acts as his easel it's a you can imagine a, a chain link fence cage that um you know eight feet high and with uh you know six sides if you will um with 40 to 50 pieces of wood hanging on the chain link fence and he's painting four up uh you know 15 different four up paintings at a time got 15 different pieces that he's working on he's making four of each and he's doing it all simultaneously (laughs) so for him i think part of the challenge is how can he finish things more quickly more efficiently as as he wants to be a one-man art factory i think he really does take that to heart i think you've said this that you know and it's not hyperbole that he is the most prolific you know, modern painter of all time. So, you know, it'd be hard to find anyone more uh, efficient than him as far as churning out work. Yeah, I mean, I, I do believe this book, you know, makes a case for him as at least the most prolific American painter of all time. He's made, um, you know, by his estimates, over 300,000 pieces by hand um, over the course of his 30 plus years and you can believe it it's easy to believe because when you see the amount of work that he does he makes you know 50 pieces at a time 50 or 60 pieces at a time 200 averaging 200 or so a week for 30 years you know it add, it does do the math it does add up this is something where i think it it deserves recognition for a number of reasons but I look at the volume of his work and the amount of joy that it's brought me personally by having so many pieces of his. And I just think of, wow, how much, how much 
enjoyment is he spreading throughout the world as the, you know, Johnny Appleseed of art, another thing, another term that he's referred to as. And this was, this book really is trying to reflect as a tribute to him, the amount of joy that he's given all of us. It just turned out that, um, I think it just turned into a really beautiful project because in the end, dozens of people sent sometimes, you know, a good portion of their Steve King collection to me in New York for me to photograph and then archive and then theoretically put in the book. And it was, you know, several months long process to, to do this, to choose these pieces and then to photograph them. But it was so rewarding. It was so cool to, 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 and to have that trust from people too. You know, where they're sending me their Steve Keen. Now these are not, as we discussed, they're very affordable artworks. But that doesn't mean they're not valuable to people. Now, what's interesting about Steve that I don't think a lot of people know, and we can maybe kind of expound on this, is that so he goes to school in Virginia where he grew up, and that's where he meets Berman and Malcolmus prior to them forming Pavement and Silver Jews. But then he goes to graduate school at Yale, you know, which is one of the most elitist um, sort of Ivy League schools around, and certainly in the art department especially, and is formally trained there. And so had all the makings of someone who could have gone off into that sort of vaunted um, elite art world of New York, which, you know, was, it was blossoming by the 80s and certainly by the 90s as he was coming into his own. He could have gone that route, but instead he has sort of done, he's found his own path and, and, and he's almost defied his own pedigree as far as his CV is concerned. You know, he, Steve is a lot of things, but I think he is like the definition of punk rock. <laughs> I really do. I mean, once he started to realize like how, you know, um, the art world works, galleries and so forth, you know, that's really not the way his mind works. And, he recognized that I think pretty early on and decided to take a different path, not just with his process, but then about how he could survive as an artist. And, you know, in in the book, you know, one of the things we talk about is he started out as a dishwasher and he, in making the, the conscious decision, well, I can be a dishwasher and make minimum wage, or I can figure out a way to make minimum wage myself by doing art. And I'll be happy with one more than the other. So how can I do my art? And he literally took it as, how can I, you know, get by? How can I pay myself enough to get by? And then, so then it became, well, how can I sell enough to do that? You know, he thought about it as in, in real practical terms. He wants to he wants to paint. He wants to paint all the time. So how could he do that and not have to be a dishwasher? I mean, it's as simple as that. And not wanting to be part of the traditional art gallery world, though like you mentioned, he does have that pedigree. I think this is all why his art is is so important, because it's not it, it affects so many people. It's become, again, it's accessible, it's affordable. So many people have collected it and sold or given away or are on people's walls. He's had a huge impact doing this work this way 
you know, Warhol, of course, quoted many times saying that he wants to be a machine. Well, Steve is a machine. <laughs> like, so though their styles were very different, their objectives in a lot of ways were very similar. And I think that his process is so uh, interesting. His idea of how broad this is so interesting, at least to me, um, that it it kind of defines his his world and how he will be defined. I think he is sort of like the walking definition of someone who's punk rock because you know, you get married, you have kids, you own property, and suddenly you can't sell paintings for five or ten dollars. He has upped things to account for some inflation, but he's still producing art on uh, an every man, every woman level where there's an entry point for most people to be able to afford his work. And this runs contrary to how the traditional art world works. And I think you're right in that he has carved out his own lane, uh, probably more so than any other artist. And he needs to be celebrated for that on its own because it's so easy to be pigeonholed in the art world for one way or the other and to be an outlier like him and to have that staying power for 30 years uh, and to have it be that consistent is is pretty remarkable. And and to your point, too, about him and, and Warhol having similar, similar kind of, I guess, sort of goals, you're right. I mean, Warhol was more than happy to let Gerard Malagna do some of the screen prints for him, whereas Steve is so, like almost the indef- like the definition of self-reliance in the traditional kind of transcendentalist way. Like, he sits there with the brush himself and does it all. Yeah, I mean, Steve does... I mean, it's really important to note if people aren't aware of how he works. Again, he paints these this cage, uh, chain-link fence cage as an easel where he can paint, you know, put up 40 different or 50 pieces of wood um, that he makes at a time, and he's, you know, creating this. But prior to that, he's cutting the wood to the different sizes that will be his canvas. He's also got his own proprietary wire system for hanging the pieces so they're actually included in the pieces this little wire hanger so he cuts the pieces he then puts the hanger drills holes in the wood then he puts the wire into the pieces so that he can hang the pieces in the cage then he paints the primer coat on all the pieces like this is he is you know this manufacturing this you know this this uh, art factory for the masses um, and he's thought about it in this way he does everything himself I think all of it is something that he enjoys doing. That's the thing. He, to me, he he is a very somewhat solitary individual who, again, really enjoys what he does um, and doesn't necessarily want to play by other people's rules. So by carving this little um, world out on his own and, and, and by selling his work the way he does, he's kind of allowing, he's deciding what, is allowed to be seen of his world. And, you know, for your, when you order a package of, of six pieces, for example, he, like I've said before, he's, he's choosing what you get to see of his. Um, you know, when I open a package from Steve, I feel, because I don't know what it is usually, you know, I, I get a sense of joy, just eagerness of opening this package. What is it going to be? And I want that, joy to come across in this book 
Yeah, and, and don't we need some joy these days, <laughs> like in our everyday <laughs> lives, just to, to practice a little bit of mindfulness of just trying to find something positive. I mean, you're right. Steve's work, you know, instantly brings a smile to most people's faces. And it's so funny. He is one of those artists, too, where people know the work, but they don't maybe know his name. But I also think that's something that speaks volumes about how he paints, you know, because that's almost the sure sign of, of someone who's, you know, developed a classic style. I think that, you know, there's a benefit for carving your own little world um, and your own little path. Um, I shouldn't say little because he's done so much more than a little. <laughs> he's done so much. Um, but it, there, there's about carving your own path. I think that's part of it as well. He He doesn't fit into these easily categorized different art vehicles. So, you know, in some ways, maybe he hasn't been written about as much as, as some or in the same way. There are, I'm certain there are certain art publications out there that won't cover this for whatever reason. Um, I, I can't understand it myself why they wouldn't cover it. To me, you know, you can't sell or distribute or produce 300,000 pieces over the course of 30 years and not touch thousands of people's lives. Like, this is an important artist. This is perhaps the most prolific American painter of all time. You know, this is a, this is an important story. Like, it's up to us to champion him. It's up to us to tell his story. He's not going to tell his story. That's not what he does. Like, he paints. That's what he does. You know, this is a, this whole book is a is a labor of love um, for people to help them understand more about him and, and how he works and where he comes from and all those things that maybe he doesn't talk about that often. But there has to be a reference point in libraries, bookstores, about the most prolific American painter of all time. There has to be. The Steve Keen Art Book, published by Hatton Beard Press in Los Angeles and Tractor Beam in New York City, is out now in hardcover. For the reading this episode, Editor Daniel Ephraim will read from his essay from the Steve Keen Art Book. For America's most prolific painter, a book is finally realized. In 1994, the record label I was working at released a compilation album called Threadwaxing Space Live, the presidential compilation, 1993 to 1994, with artwork by the prolific artist Steve Keen. At that time, the venue was regularly packed with Keen's bright, inexpensive paintings, and everyone bought one, or five. Since then, I've commissioned Keen to create original album cover art for bands I have worked with and I've curated two of his shows. In the 1990s, you could not avoid Steve Keen paintings. 
everyone seemed to have a keen. In New York, they decorated tiny apartment walls, clubs, record stores, and dive bars, including Brownies, CB's Gallery, The Knitting Factory, Lakeside Lounge, Kim's Underground, Other Music, Max Fish, Rocks in Your Head, and others. These days, you can still spot them in spaces such as Westville East and the Double Windsor. For nearly three decades, Keene's paintings have been a big part of our lives, and our respect for his work has led to this collaboration. While it's impossible for one book to accurately represent Keene's 35 years and 300,000 hand-painted pieces, we have used crowdsourcing to pull together images and tributes from admirers and collectors of his work. The Steve Keen art book is the result of community, fans, musicians, and a few art world types coming together to share what he means to us. To support Big Table, go to invisiblerepublic.org and click on the Big Table link. There you will find many ways to financially support this podcast. And thanks in advance. Big Table is produced and presented by Hat and Beard Press and Dub Lab in Los Angeles and is written and edited by yours truly, J.C. Gable. Our sound designer and editor is Matea Baim. Our engineer is Jacob Ross. Special thanks to Alejandro Ale Cohen and Mark Frosty McNeil from Dub Lab for early encouragement and support and to file-sharing company WeTransfer for helping sponsor this experiment in audio storytelling. Big Table is also funded in part by Invisible Republic, a nonprofit arts organization based in Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. You can find out more about their programming and publications at invisiblerepublic.org. Thanks again for listening.